0: you survived another year. Happy New Year. Welcome to the Black Man with a Gun podcast. This one's over an hour long. Includes a couple of songs. Barbara talks about women in concealed carry. We got zombie strike. We also have an author talking about Glock, America's pistol. And the lie detector, a polygrapher. And more here on your favorite righteous podcast, The Black Man with a Gun. You ready to rock with me? Well, let's dream on, together.
1: Every time My face getting clearer The past is gone It went by Like dust to dawn Isn't that the way Everybody's got the dues In life to pay I know Nobody knows where it comes and where it goes. I know it's everybody said it. you got to lose to know how to win. sing for the tears sing with me just for today maybe tomorrow the good lord will take you away crossbreedholsters.com presents the black man with a gun podcast from kenblanchard.com this weekly show is diverse open and free involving all members of the gun community it's not just about guns It's about the people behind the gun, plus your rights, fun, news, and interviews. And now, here's your host, Pastor Ken Blanchard.
0: All right, I just realized that after four attempts at doing this podcast, I screwed up again and blanked out a whole section of my voice and the narrative part of it. And man, I don't know what I was on last night. It was just just one of those times. So this is the fourth iteration of the 250th episode of the Black Man with a Gun podcast. Can you believe that? I mean, I've downloaded it, uploaded it, downloaded it, uploaded it, downloaded it, uploaded it, had to remove it a couple of times. It's been rough. But there must be a reason for it somewhere other than your boy Screwy in the end of the year. I'm doing okay. I'm doing fine, actually. And I'm hoping that you'll continue to dream on in 2012. Continue to live the life you're supposed to. There's been some ups. There's been some downs. There's been some negatives in this year, and we can get over it. We can. And that's why I'm here. I'm here to give you some encouragement, all the gun people, all those who believe in freedom, that we can continue to keep on going no matter what's happening. I mean, there's some stuff going on. There's a few people who have been sick all through the holidays. Some people are suffering through some financial issues. There's some family stuff still going on. Some people didn't make a home for Christmas The list is huge. But the best part about the new year is that you have an opportunity, if you can get up, to try it one more time, to finish one more round. You ready for that? I am. Let's bring in John Wayne for our Pledge of Allegiance and get episode number 250 going like it's supposed to. Thanks for your patience.
2: I pledge allegiance. To the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. One nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all.
0: Unbelievable. Can't believe all the dead space in that previous one. If you downloaded the episode first, you got some crazy stuff. Hey, sorry about that. Life's just harder when you're ugly. Yeah, it's true. When you don't have their face that a company is looking for, they won't hire you to represent them. You might be beautiful to somebody, especially to your mama, but life is just hard when you're ugly. People look at you different and inspect what you're not. That's just how it is. And you never really get a good opportunity to show people what's inside you. And that's the best part about this podcast right here. It is. When I started it, I was trying to reach out to people. I had been unsuccessful in making monthly or yearly classes or getting people together to speak, to talk about firearm safety, about activism, about living better, all the stuff that I talk about here on this show. I was, it was just impossible. I couldn't get enough people. Everybody's schedule was different. So the podcast for me was a chance to, to reach out to the world. I had no idea that what I was going to actually get was friends, really good friends. I have people that I look forward to talking to on a monthly basis, on a weekly basis, on a daily basis, by email. I got people who challenge me in my thinking, people who I would never have met if I wasn't doing this thing. Quick shout-out to uh, Clint of Clint, um, Buyer Barrels, to the three Richards, Richard Heller, my former boss, Richard, and uh, Richard of "The Blue Sheepdog." To Barbara and Laura Ashley and Lloyd and Frank, thank you for your support and helping me get my website up and just thinking about social media stuff. To Kathy, thank you for your help all year. To Matt and Therese for keeping conservatism alive. For my brothers Ryan and Rob. For you, who I didn't mention yet, thank you. For your emails, thank you so much for the Christmas cards, those that sent them. I'm not going to name everybody because I'll probably miss somebody. And I missed people already. But charge it to my head, not my heart. It's been a rough morning. But I refuse to give up. And you should too in 2012. I don't care what's wrong and what's right. If you can get up today, if you can get up tomorrow, you got a chance to... Undo the jacked up stuff that's happened to you. Let it be a happy new year, happy day, every day. Don't let your circumstances, your happening, make you happy or sad. Fix that thing within you so that you can kick some tail. I know 2011 was evil. Had the Occupy movement, messing up stuff. You had the deaths and injuries and the war and a lot of friends lost jobs and a few kids went astray. Marriages broke up. I know. I didn't win any awards either. But again, life is harder when you're ugly. So I just took it under account. That's just my story. If you want to reach me for a comment, for critique, for criticism, just say hi to your brother. My number is 888-675-0202. That's toll free in the U.S. And you can always email me at blackmailandagun at gmail.com. Let's shuffle some stuff in here and find our sponsor, crossbreed holster being an armed citizen means having a gun with you all the time carrying a firearm every day requires a holster that is both concealable and comfortable whether you choose our super tuck deluxe or mini tuck you'll have the confidence that comes from being discreetly and comfortably armed prepared to face unforeseen dangers crossbreed holsters are handmade in the usa come with a lifetime warranty and a two-week try it free guarantee Order your holster today at CrossbreedHolsters.com. All right, now that I got the um, the remakes going on, this episode might actually be shorter than an hour. Let's bring in Barbara. Babs in the woods. From Women's Outdoor Barbara Baird.
2: Black Man with a Gun, this is Barbara Baird. Recently we ran a giveaway at the one for the Flash Bang holster from Bang Bang Boutique. The flashbang fits near a woman's sternum area and attaches to her bra. Bang Bang's proprietor, Kimberly Bortz, describes this item for us. The handgun snaps into a hard plastic shell that has been custom-designed for many models of concealed carry firearms, with more added on a regular basis. Three leather straps of different lengths are included to attach the holster firmly to the middle of your favorite bra. They change out with a screwdriver. The gun fits inside the bra band against your chest, which supports the gun and holds it securely in place. This design also ensures you will not notice the weight of your firearm. Even when wearing fitted T-shirts, this holster virtually disappears under clothing, allowing a woman to wear what makes her comfortable, even when she is carrying We received several comments because we asked our readers to tell us why they carry concealed, and I was thinking that you guys might like some of the answers. Becky Jean writes, I carry concealed because my dad and boyfriend constantly worry about me, and it brings us all peace of mind. It beats carrying around that safety whistle everyone is making a big deal out of, not to mention the more it is concealed, the less likely any threat will be to think you're reaching for protection. Great idea. Shannon says, I carry concealed because I am a woman living alone, and I don't think anything would ever happen, but I want to be prepared in case it does. I think it's important for everyone to know how to work a firearm because you just never know. Meanwhile, Yvonne commented, I carry concealed because I don't want to be the helpless victim. The way our society is now, you never know who is around or what their intentions are. I pray never to be a victim of a violent crime, but by having my gun close by and practicing on a regular basis, if I am unlucky one day, at least I have a fighting chance to survive. Rely on yourself first because even though you may lend a hand to somebody in trouble, they might not be so kind as to return the favor. And Michelle writes, I carry concealed because I can. It is my responsibility as a wife and a mother to protect my family and our well-being, not only do I have concerns for our safety here in the city, but I have increased concerns over who or what we may encounter when we're out in the woods. After having a close call with a cougar a few years ago, I never venture into the outdoors without carrying a sidearm. And Kelsey writes I'm a stay at home mom of two. At five foot four inches and 105 pounds, I couldn't exactly fight off an attacker. My 38 gives me peace of mind that I can protect my children and myself if need be. And the last comment that I want to include today is from Jenny, who writes, I'm a real estate agent, and I'm in and out of empty houses all day with strangers that I've never met. I feel much safer knowing that I can protect myself if something bad were to happen. By the way, I have a great guy in my life who has helped me realize the importance of CCW, and he just happens to be an awesome CC instructor. Lucky you, Jenny. So this should make you feel good, guys, that there are women out there who've got your back. And thanks for another great year of podcasts, Ken. Happy New Year to all of you.
0: All right, Barbara. Thank you so much. Now, we're going to bring in the uh, people who brought me my Lone Wolf gun. I actually got my barrel last week, right after last week's podcast, and I can't wait to shoot it today. Making that 40 into a nine with all the accoutrements that this new Lone Wolf um, pistol has. Love it to death. Here we go. A little love from Lone Wolf. Triggers, cycles, plugs, hoarding, barrels, slides, springs, grips, laser engraving, and more. LoneWolfDist.com In 1986, I was introduced to the Glock 17 safe action pistol at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center. Like Henry Ford's Model T, you could get your new purchase in only one color, one configuration. Today, there is Lone Wolf Distributors, the world's largest distributors of Glock accessories. You can tattoo, improve, customize, accessorize, and glamorize your Glock today like never before. Check out the catalog for yourself at LoneWolfDist.com. That's LoneWolfDist.com. This is just a good sample of a commercial I made, out of, I made for love. Lone Wolf didn't, didn't pay me for this, but I can do the same thing for you if you have a small business, especially if you're a trainer and you want to stand above the crowd hit me up at blackmanwithagun at gmail.com and let me comprise and compose and create something special that you can play on radio stations, other people's podcasts, and definitely it'll be sponsored here at Blackman With A Gun Podcast. All right, next up is an interview I had with a friend of mine who is a polygrapher, does this thing full-time. Actually, the lie detector and all that, if you want to, Talk to him afterwards and get some questions in about polygraphs that you've always wanted to know. I bet nobody else has this guy or has a polygrapher on their website or their podcast. This was his first interview. And all your questions, you can just send them to me and I'll pass them on to him. Here we go with this. Dr. Johnson, welcome to the Black Man with a Gun podcast.
3: Thank you. I appreciate uh, the invitation and uh, looking forward to our discussion.
0: Man, you're one of the only polygraphers that I know, and I want to talk about this really interesting subject about polygraphy. What what can you tell me about it? How long have you been in it?
3: Well, I have been in polygraph for many years. I I think uh, I'd be accurate by just saying that uh, I went to polygraph school in 1982 graduated from polygraph school was and was certified as a federal examiner after uh, four and a half months of training.
0: Okay, so you, you've been in a minute. There's a lot of speculation and just uh, controversy about whether it's legal or is mystical or magical. What can you tell me about the polygraph?
3: Well, first of all, there is quite a, quite a bit of uh, misconception and uh, misunderstanding about polygraph. And there's a lot of... Uh, controversy that's associated with it because of the opposing views that um, that people feel about uh, polygraph. It brings out a lot of visceral emotions from folks uh, from both ends uh, with respect to whether it's, it's validated, it's, it's, it's worthwhile, and whether it's effective or not. And truly, uh, the profession and industry walks a fine line. Uh, it marks a fine line between the art form of what polygraph is and also the science aspect of polygraph. There's a lot of folks that think that it should be more uh, scientific-focused and more exact, and, um, and it's those very same folks that feel that uh, it should be uh, more regimented and, uh, and regulated to the point where it's, it's much like a science when in fact, it's very hard for it to be that way because you talk about human beings and the interface that the industry addresses. It's, it's talking about, or I mean, it, it deals with human beings. And when you talk about human beings, it's, it's, it brings in the psychological aspects of it, the physiological aspects of it, and it's very hard to put human beings in a scientific situation because human beings are not predictable.
0: Okay. So you have an instrument that measures what? Actually,
3: well, you have an instrument that, uh, from a scientific standpoint, that's truly why uh, uh, the scientific uh, uh, perspectives and uh, and viewpoints of it uh, try to push it more in the scientific uh, arena because it addresses things that are uh, commonly uh, looked at, looked at and addressed from a medical standpoint. It registers your your physiology from the uh, cardio. Uh, vascular perspective. In essence, your heartbeats. Mm-hmm. It also monitors your um, your respiratory patterns. In essence, it monitors your autonomic nervous system, which is something you can't control. You're not supposed to be able to control it. Very reliable when you monitor those aspects of a human, because these are the uh, aspects of a human being that connects to the psychological mindset or the DNA of a, of a person, we all have autonomic nervous systems Mm -hmm. and it is the autonomic nervous systems that's being monitored when you're being asked questions on a polygraph examination. Okay. Because an, an individual is, is responding from a psychological standpoint that translates to their physiology that gives a footprint, if you would, um, with respect to what their mindset from a psychological standpoint is responding to.
0: Okay. But talking about the psychological, everybody's not on the same page there though.
3: That's true. Uh, And they shouldn't be because (laughs) no one should be on the same page from a psychological standpoint because everyone is different. That's why the science, actually the industry is so unique because You can't look at one person and say they're going to respond to a particular topic or subject matter in the same way as another. That's why you have to look at a polygraph examination one person has as a unique experience for that particular person or that situation.
0: And you just kind of said something that made me think of you can't have an automated polygraph system. You're going to have to have a human to kind of work it always, right?
3: You do, and uh, the other aspect of it that makes it unique is because uh, it's the individual that is behind the scenes that's administering the examination, and that person's training, that person's approach to administering the polygraph examination is key. It's critical to the success of that process. That's why you you get into a discussion with someone about uh, how the polygraph is not effective or how you can beat the polygraph when, in fact, You're talking about different things because the polygraph instrument or the polygraph tool or whatever I do from a physiological standpoint can be monitored, and that's that's a scientific fact. You can can measure that. But the psychology or the psychological aspects of that and how a person interprets that and a person that is interpreting that is the person that's administering the examination, that polygrapher is critical to that process because that individual, he or she is bringing all of their experience, all of the training that they have, and they're coming forth and, and overlaying that whole process and coming out with the effective results that one should have when you're uh, administering a polygraph exam.
0: So having 30 years of experience makes you like a master polygrapher then, right?
3: I, I would not like to say that about myself because every day, every experience, every endeavor that I uh, engage with is a new experience. I learn every time with each session, so you can't you can't ever walk away from this process and say you know it all, or you're an expert, or you're you're an icon in the industry, or you know everything, you're totally knowledgeable about all spe- all aspects of it. Because you can be humiliated. The next session that you would engage in, uh, you will learn something new in every situation that you engage in, every session that you have, every polygraph examination that you administer. And it's a very taxing process, and you gotta, you have to, you have to approach it in a way where uh, you 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 go into it knowing that this is a new experience, and you have to be on your a game, as they often say. You have to be totally prepared and aware and be accepting and be flexible and be creative and be intuitive and understanding of all the skills that you have and try and apply those skills with this particular person that you're engaging at at that particular moment. Because if you don't, then you may fall short and you may miss something or you may misinterpret something or you may not uh, do something or you may do something that you're not supposed to do, or you may say something that you're not supposed to say, or you may not say something that you're supposed to say. So you always have to be on your best performance when you're engaging in a process like that. You often get the comment that when a person is taking a polygraph examination, it's a very stressful process for that person that's taking the polygraph examination. But it's not really considered when the person that is administering the polygraph examination is going through that same stress, that same emotional uh, experience that the person that's being administered the polygraph exam. In essence, there are two people in the process, and both are going through a process together, and the individual that's administering the examination has to be totally in control and understanding of what he or she is doing, and they sometimes have to be two and three steps ahead of the person that's being administered upon a polygraph examination because that person has to either be led directed or facilitated with the process that they're going through. I think you're also dealing with the emotional aspects of that individual when you're in this examination.
0: Wow. I never thought about the other person being wore out, but you are kind of stuck in that room with that person for a long time.
3: Yes, you are. And, uh, you're, you're talking to them. They're talking to you sometimes,
0: sometimes you're not. You have to, uh, Convince
3: them that it's important that they do talk to you. Sometimes they don't want to talk to you, and uh, people get a, a, mis- a misconception about um, interrogations. For instance, use that word. It's not a very common. I mean, not a very popular word, uh, particularly uh, with uh, the uh, the image of waterboarding and torture, right, and, right. and, and all those things that that people associate to interrogations, when in fact those aren't interrogations at all. Surprising statement to, to make. But they're not interrogations. They are means of torture. Interrogations are conversations. They're extensions of conversations. That's what interrogations are. They sometimes can be confrontational. They sometimes can be manipulative, but they're never coercive. They're never endeavors where you're engaging folks and causing pain to them. How should I they're, they're, How should I call it? There are criminal offenses. You can't do those kind of things to a person and say that you're abiding by their human rights, their constitutional rights if they're uh, citizens of the United States. A person who would do those things would justifiably be charged with a crime because you don't do those things. You don't waterboard people. You don't cause pain... And inflict uh, inflictions on people to try to get them to confess of something that you think they may have done, because history has shown, as well as uh, research has shown, that when you subject in- subject an individual to those kind of duressful situations, they won't say anything to you to relieve themselves of the suffering that you're um, you're giving them, and that puts you in a situation where, with the results that you receive from an endeavor where you. Uh, to, uh, expose someone to uh, pain and suffering, what can you do with the information that they've given you? Can you use it? Is, it? is it trustworthy? Is it truthful? Is it factual? And in many cases, it's not, because the individual has given that information up to relieve themselves of the pain that you're uh, engaging them in. So um, that's why international courts, national treaties from the sovereign countries around the world have signed up to laws, international laws, that torture is not accepted. When you're talking about uh, prisoner exchanges and, and how you engage people in trying to elicit information from them in a war situation, they, they don't sign up to the, to the methods of torture because it's not effective. Wow. But of course, it's not, it's not universal. There are other countries around the world that are still using those things, thinking that it's, it's an effective means of using it. But statistics have shown that Studies have shown that uh, that is not something that, um, that you would do to try and co- coerce or try and get information from people. And unfortunately, we've had uh, people, even in our country, under times of duress and stress uh, and, um, and in urgent situations where they feel they need to have information quickly to respond to certain things that they, re- they thought were, were crises and they needed answers quickly, to take those kind of shortcuts where they thought they were, but they weren't effective.
0: Gotcha. It wasn't meaningful. Has polygraph equipment changed any in the last couple of years, or is it still the same stuff?
1: It
3: is um, one of the things that many folks in the the industry now uh, continue to uh, suggest that we should improve on because many of the things that we use now in the form of monitoring uh, uh, the physiology of an individual and taking a polygraph examination are things that we've used dating back to 1947, 48, probably earlier than that even, we still monitor uh, respiratory patterns. We still monitor cardio patterns. We still monitor monitor uh, perspiration. There has been some research on uh, on other biometrics that, uh, that are often looked upon and talked about with respect to whether they are uh, methods to detect uh, deception, such as uh, uh, retina scanning, uh, biometrics, or brain mapping, or voice stress analysis, all of those various uh, cool, cool
0: stuff for the movies
3: have been looked at and some of them, yeah, I mean, you, you see it in the movies sometimes, but uh, uh, the research is still uh, undecided on whether those things are as effective as, uh, as they try and improve uh, uh, methodologies that are currently in, in, in place, but they're still trying to uh, develop other techniques to include some techniques where they don't have to um, touch a person or use um, things such as um, cardio cuffs or uh, or galvanic templates that they use to put on the fingertips to try and allow a person to um, be touched but be able to use uh, something remotely to determine whether a person is uh, practicing deception. Oh, okay. But they're 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 still trying to work on those kind of things, but they haven't come forth and uh, and broken the uh, the code on whether those things are effective or not.
0: Yeah, the human body hasn't changed much in a while, so.
3: No, it hasn't. No.
0: Man, this is fascinating stuff. How can we reach you if somebody wants to get more information about what you do and or to use your services?
3: Well, uh, I have a website that's listed at www dot uh, cjassociates dot com. Uh, you can check that out. And uh, I'm registered in the state of Maryland and uh, California to conduct polygraph exams. I'm also affiliated with the uh, American Polygraph Association, which is an international uh, polygraph association where uh, most polygraphers who are who are legitimate and recognized uh, in the industry that also conduct polygraph examination at the federal level where they have classes a member of. I'm, awful. I'm also um uh, a Maryland State Polygraph Examiner, uh registered, for, former former uh, vice president for two terms with uh, Maryland State Polygraph Association. And um I can be reached at um my uh my email address is security underscore dot consultants. Oh I'm sorry, let me repeat that again. It's security underscore consultants and that's with an S
0: All right, I'll make sure I put those links up on the website. That's uh, cjassociates.com and security underscore associates or consultants at hotmail.com. Those links are all screwed up, but you'll find the one that goes right to CJ's website for the show notes for episode Two fifty at KenNBlanchard.com dot com. Gonna change gears for a minute, do something I don't usually do, but uh, I'm gonna include a little country music for you, just to interlude as I get my brain together here. Down to Georgia, he was looking for a soul to steal. He was in a bind because he was way behind, he was willing to make a deal. When he came across this young man, sewn on the fiddle and playing it hot, and the devil jumped up on the hickory stump and said, Boy, let me tell you what. I guess you didn't know it, but I'm a fiddle player too. And if you care to take a day, I'd make a bet with you. Now, you play pretty good fiddle, boy, but give the devil his due. I bet a fiddle of gold against your because I think I'm better than you boy say my name's Johnny and it might be a sin But I'll take your bet you're gonna regret Cause I'm the best that's ever been Johnny Rodson, up your bow and play your fiddle hard Cause hell broke loose in Georgia and the devil deals the cards And if you win, you get this shiny fiddle made of gold But if you lose, the devil gets your soul He opened up his case and he said I'll start this show and fire flew from his fingertips as he rossened up his bow and he pulled a bow across the strings and it made an evil hiss and a band of demons joined in and it sounded something like this finished, Johnny said, well, you're pretty good, old son, but sit down in that chair right there let me show you how it's done. They said, fire on the mountain, run, boys, run. The devil in the house of the rising sun, chicken in the bread pan, picking out dough. Granny does a dog bite, no child, no his head because he knew that he'd been beat, and he laid that golden fiddle on the ground at Johnny's feet. Johnny said, "Devil, just come on back now if you ever want to try again. I done told you once, you son of a gun. I'm the best that's ever been." And he played a fire on the mountain, run boys, run. The devil now of the rising sun. chicken in the bread pan and picking out dough. Johnny, when your dog bite, no child, no. If you have no idea why a black man singing a Charlie Daniels song, let me tell you, it's because of this show. This show has introduced me to a whole bunch of things. It's because of, uh, because of you, actually. I've actually dared to try to sing. And I'm not trying to win any awards at all for that. What I'm doing is, it's a sing-along. It's, if I'm doing it, I want you to sing with me. I want it to lift the spirits. I want you to go. I don't believe he tried that. And, and smile. That's all. That's all it's for. It's for entertainment purposes only. All right? Cool. Hey, I think I saw you smile. All right. We're working it now. Now.
4: And now, our featured presentation.
0: All right, Paul Barrett, welcome to the Black Man with a Gun podcast.
4: I'm glad to be here. Thank you.
0: Man, I heard you got a new book out. Tell me about it.
4: That's right. The book is called Block. The Rise of America's Gun, and it's a narrative uh, history of the Glock pistol, uh, the man who uh, invented it, Gaston Glock, uh, an Austrian industrialist, and the, uh, the marketing genius that lies behind uh, how this uh, gun, which, after all, didn't even exist until 1982, within the span of a few years uh, stormed the American law enforcement market and then the broader civilian market became an icon in Hollywood on television, in hip-hop music. All of this happened with a startling speed, and my book uh, explains how it happened and uh, why it matters and how this Austrian handgun captured the imagination of uh, the largest uh, gun market in the world, that of the United States.
0: Wow, man, that's some good stuff there. How can we get the book?
4: The book is uh, officially out January 10th. It'll be in, uh, you know, bricks and mortars uh, bookstores. It's available right now for pre-order on a very nice discount, in fact, on Amazon.com. So if you go to Amazon.com and tap in uh, Glock, The Rise of America's Gun," you'll see it. Uh, and you can you can order it. I think Amazon has a 40% uh, discount right now if you pre-order it, and they'll deliver it to you on January 10th. But if, if you're not an online type of person, then uh, just go to your neighborhood bookstore on January 10th, and there it'll be.
0: Oh, man, good deal. That title again is Glock, the Rise of the American Gun?
4: Uh, Glock, the Rise of America's Gun, and it's interesting. There's there's been some discussion on some gun forums and blogs about the title. Some people uh, even took offense because I referred to Glock as America's Gun. Of course, there are people who would uh, you know, jump out of their shoes over something like that, saying, well, the 1911 is America's gun, or the Smith & Wesson is America's gun. But as I explain in the book, the key to Glock's success was figuring out how to appeal to the American consumer. Yes. If Glock had remained in Austria and just supplied the Austrian military uh, and the Austrian police force, or maybe in Germany, I mean, it would barely have uh, broken through commercially. But the key to Gap and Glock's success with figuring out how to appeal to Americans, how to get his gun uh, in the hands of uh, you know Hollywood movie stars like Arnold Schwarzenegger or Bruce Willis. Yes. So in a, in a very real sense, Glock is what it is today because it became America's gun in spite of the long American tradition of of great handguns like Smith and Wesson, like Colt. Uh, you know, like uh, the, the various manufacturers of 1911 models and so forth.
0: Mm, good stuff, man. What, what's some really cool things that you've learned writing this book?
4: One of the most amazing things that I learned was how efforts to restrict the Glock and other guns like it had the opposite effect. For example, when the Glock first showed up on these shores in 1986-1987, there were efforts to ban the gun by name. In other words, there were jurisdictions that said no Glocks within our borders. New York City was one such jurisdiction. The New York City Police Department said that no one, cops, ordinary civilians, no one could uh, could own a Glock. Now, rather than uh, they kill the Glock in the crib, so to speak, what this did was it drew tremendous amount of attention to the Glock and made it uh, notorious in the sense of, uh, you know, everyone wanted to find out what was so special about this gun. In New York, it turned out in 1988, there was a a press leak, and it turned out that the commissioner of police, a man named Benjamin Ward at the time, who, just as an aside, given the nature of the show, happened to be the first African-American commissioner of police uh, in, uh, in New York, uh... Benjamin Ward was himself carrying a Glock under his suit jacket. So everyone, <laughs> everyone in the city was banned from having one except the top cop. He wanted to have one, and he was carrying a Glock. Well, of course, within a couple of weeks, the ban was dropped and Glocks were legal, and the New York Post uh, was running a, a monster headline that said, uh, Top Cop Wards Off Ban on Super Guns. Now, I interviewed the guy who was the chief of Glock marketing at that time, a guy named Carl Walter, and he explained to me, if you had given me a $50 million budget, I couldn't have bought attention like that, major newspaper calling my product the super gun. So that pattern repeated itself over and over, over the years with Glock, efforts to demonize the gun had the opposite effect. It made it more popular, drew attention to the gun that it otherwise wouldn't have received. You probably remember, and your listeners probably would remember, the so-called plastic pistol controversy of the late 1980s. Oh,
0: yeah, Bruce Willis did it.
4: Right, exactly. Bruce Willis, well, that's a very good reference, because Bruce Willis in Die Hard 2, which was sort of Glock's Hollywood debut in 1990, Mm -hmm. his character referred to the Glock, and, in fact, he had a famous soliloquy about the Glock. Did you see that punk? He pulled a Glock 7 on me. That's a German gun made out of porcelain. Your uh, airport uh, screening machines can't see it. Every single thing that Bruce Willis's character said was incorrect. It's, <laughs> right. it's not a German gun. There's no such thing as a Glock 7. It's made out of plastic, not out of porcelain. But the reference to the uh, airport security was actually a real reference. At the time, anti-gun uh, activists were saying that the Glock and other uh, guns designed like it would not be picked up by airport screening machines. This just turned out to be factually false. But uh, because of the screening machines are not simple magnetometers, as it happened, they're x-ray machines. But in any event, all the controversy surrounding this idea that the Glock would become the so-called hijacker's special only helped Glock. It only made Glock kind of a a a darkly glamorous celebrity within the uh, gun world and drew the NRA to its side and accelerated its commercial success. So to me, that was one of the most surprising things that time after time, after time efforts to, uh, to stop the gun only helped the gun.
0: Totally man. That's some good stuff there.
4: It's quite a story. I mean, I've been a business journalist, as you know, for almost 30 years now. And, I I really have come across very, very few companies that have rocketed uh, to prominence as swiftly and with such unlikely twists and turns uh, as the Glock firearm has. And, you know, Gaston Glock uh, has been the beneficiary of that. Uh, You know, he's a billionaire. He still owns the company. He's still alive, 82 years old. Uh, And, in fact, uh, just this summer, uh, the old man got remarried, according to the Austrian press. He... uh, he divorced his wife Helga of, I think, forty-nine years, and married the thirty-one-year-old woman who runs his high-end equestrian stable. So, uh, old Gaspin Glock uh, has not lost his uh, lust for life, as it were. <laughs> oh man! He, he, you know, he started out as a, as a very provincial guy. Um, when he started the company, he didn't speak English. He knew nothing about the United States, but he hired smart people, and uh, he had a Very, very big ambition. It was audacious for him to even put his hand up to uh, design a new pistol for his home country's army. That's how he got started. He was making curtain rods and uh, bayonets and knives in a uh, garage-style manufacturing outfit uh, next to his home using a second-hand Russian uh, metal press. But because of the, the knives and the bayonets, he had contacts with the defense ministry in Austria and learned that uh, they were looking for a replacement for the Walther P-38 uh, World War II-era pistols that their uh, officers and tankers and other and other uh, 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 soldiers were, were carrying. And uh, it was very audacious of him to put his hand up and say, I'd like to try to design a gun. He, he had no background in firearms. Uh, to start with, so the maker of of curtain rods went in the space of a few years to being the manufacturer of handguns. Really, no precedent for that uh, in the gun industry. As I say in the book, I really think both in terms of his inventiveness and in terms of his marketing, he's really the Samuel Colt uh, of the of the late twentieth century.
0: That's good stuff, man. Name of the book one more time.
4: The book is called Block. The Rise of America's Gun, and I'm the author. Uh, my name is Paul Barrett, and I'd be thrilled to have your uh, listeners uh, go out and give it a look. I, I think uh, both gun owners and people who aren't that familiar with guns uh, would find it interesting. I think people in law enforcement in particular, because Glock has been so popular with cops over the years, will be interested in the book, and I'm just uh, thrilled to have had the chance to tell you about it.
0: Man, thanks for coming on the show, and I'm looking forward to reading it myself.
4: Thanks, Ken. I appreciate
0: it. All right, Paul. Until I see you again, man, you take care of yourself. All right. Same to you. All right. Last up, Zombie Strike. You know you love it. You know, we get down to the last few chapters to the book, is almost over. Zombie Strike. This used to be an extreme sport watched by millions around the world. We hunted zombies on a man-made island in the South Pacific. Well, that was then. This is now. Part 11. Chapter 112. Southern outskirts of St. Louis, Missouri, 31 December 2011, 0730 hours local. Countdown, 16 hours, 30 minutes. Mateo Cortez ducked as the golem swung its axe. He felt the obsidian blade whistle over his head. Mateo tried to bring his M4 up. The added weight of his underslung shotgun made the weapon slow. Suddenly, Quentin was standing next to him. The big man caught the axe on his reinforced forearm armor. A hammer blow to the hip drove the Gollum to the ground. Mateo saw his chance and fired. The 556 millimeter round shattered the golem's stone medallion and its mystical protection. Its unearthly scream was cut short as Quentin decapitated it with a single blow. Thanks, Mateo said. Two raffle cracks told him that Sissy and Jess were keeping those minions' heads down. Stall. The Steve and Sport were dealing with a small horde of zombies drawn by the crash of the tilt rotor. Tredegar was talking into a radio with Evan standing over him. Billy had disappeared, chasing after the other golem. Mateo moved next to Sissy, behind the wreckage of the tilt rotor. Any luck? Mateo asked. Jess may have gotten a piece of hers, Sissy stated calmly, her eyes never coming off her scope. Mine seems to have learned from his friend. Mateo peeked over it, the shadowed wing. The first minion was lying dead. He'd been the leader of the team sent to collect zombie strike. He'd expected to find the team knocked out from the crash of their tilt rotor. Mateo's shotgun blast threw the minion out of the cargo compartment and sent his force scurrying. Well, back to the original plan before those golems interrupted us, Mateo said. Tredegar quit playing with that radio and get over here. The FBI agent scowled, but complied. Evan trotted behind his principal. As soon as I give you the word, I want you to run to that drugstore. Jess and Sissy will cover you, Mateo said, pointing at the building maybe a hundred yards from the tilt rotor's crash site. Evan, you stay with Quentin and me. What do you want me to do when I get there? Tredegar asked, clearly unsure of Mateo's plan. You'll know when you get there, Mateo said. Tredegar cautiously moved to the edge of the wreckage. With a weak smile, the FBI agent gave Mateo a thumbs up. Mateo and Quentin readied grenades. Mateo took one last look at the small wall the two remaining minions were using for cover. Now, Mateo said. Tredegar sprinted out as Mateo and Quentin tossed their grenades. Quentin's grenades started spewing bright blue smoke, blanketing the area. Mateo's arched over the wall and detonated. His was a concussion grenade. Mateo, Quentin, and Evan stormed the wall. One of the minions stood up to attack the trio. A rifle cracked, and the minion's head exploded into red mist. Quentin vaulted the low wall as Evan and Mateo brought their weapons over. Mateo swore. The last minion must have been too close to the concussion grenade. The side of his head looked like Quentin had hit it with his hammer. Mateo wanted the last one alive. Why did you have to run me towards the drugstore if you're going to just assault them? Tredegar asked as the FBI agent rejoined the team. Because he was using you as a decoy, Sissy answered with a caustic tone. She shot Mateo, an accusing glare. Tredegar just looked hurt and surprised. Sissy, in case you missed it, we're trying to stop the end or enslavement of the world, Mateo said. I'm going to try and get us all out of here alive but I'll spend your lives if I feel it necessary. Of course you will, Sissy said in a biting tone. She walked off to help the rest of the team finish off the zombies. Mateo swore under his breath. Tredegar, see if you can find us some vehicles. The minion had to transport us in something. Mateo ordered. Gwinton stood next to Mateo as Tredegar and Evan started their search. You could have handled that better, Matt. Quentin said, maybe, but something about that woman, Mateo said, unable to say what was going through his mind. Just try to keep that infamous temper of yours under control, Quentin said. I'd like to see the new year. St. Louis, Missouri, 31 December, 2011, 0800 hours local, countdown, 16 hours. Castle nearly shot the television. It was bad enough to watch Zombie Strike casually pick off Mikhail's hand-picked retrieval team. Listening to Colin laugh as each of his champions fell was maddening. If he didn't need the ebony Brit, Castle would have put a bullet into that smiling face. Well, that didn't go as planned, Colin said as Zombie Strike piled into two cars the champions were supposed to use to bring in the prisoners. Be glad the lasses didn't notice your boy with a camcorder. You'd have another one of your boys in a body bag. Castle shot up from the chair and stormed over to where Mikhail was talking with another of his champions. Your chosen team failed, Castle said, his voice cold. No, they are still in place and following the zombie strike team, Mikhail said, turning to Castle. Now go sit down until it's time for the golden ritual. What did you say? Castle demanded. You're letting your hatred of zombie strike affect your thinking, Mikhail said his voice a careful neutral. The last time we tried to capture a zombie strike, they nearly killed you. Better to let them think they're running free while keeping them under surveillance. Hate to admit it, but Giant's right, Collins said, joining the two. If you want Mateo, you're going to need to let him come to you. Castle bit down the angry retort. Mikael was Castle's senior, subordinate, and ally. The great champion had already seen some of the path. He knew what would happen if they succeeded and if they failed. Mikhail would not jeopardize the path the truth had been walking on these many years. Mikhail, continue your surveillance, but try to winnow off some of them, Castle said, not willing to fully relent against his need for revenge. Mikhail graciously accepted his partial victory with a slight bow. We shall do as ordered. If you like Zombie Strike, you are probably like this. Bad Moon Rising. Read about it at Derek-Ward.com. Alright, thank you for listening, downloading, or subscribing to the Black Man with a Gun podcast. If you want to contact me, my toll-free number is 888-888. 6750202. 6750202. Email is gun at gmail.com and I am available twenty four hours a day, seven days a week for you. If you want to check on the blog? For comments and for show notes for this episode, you'll find it at KenNBlanchard.com. Now may the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sunshine warm upon your face. The rains fall soft upon your fields. And until we meet again, or until next week's show, may God hold you in the palm of his hand. Shalom, baby.
1: I'll be anything you need. You could have a big, big Going up and down all around. Bumper car bumping, this amusement never ends. I wanna be the Sword hammer. Why don't you call my name? Oh, let me be the switch hammer. This will be my testimony. Yeah!
3: Let's start this party with a bang!
0: <laughs> Happy New Year, and thank you for listening.